Shalom, Shalom. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. I'm delighted to hear that you are drawn to the Jewish root that supports the grafted in branches. You know, Torah is central to properly understand and perform the will of Hashem, that is, God. It is crucial for us to understand theologically that the primary purpose in Hashem's giving of the Torah as a way of making someone forensically righteous only achieves its goal when the person, by faith, accepts that Yeshua, Jesus, is the promised Messiah spoken about therein. Welcome to Parashat Tetzaveh. You are to order. The address is Shemot, Exodus, chapter 27, verse 20, through chapter 30, verse 10. The reading date is for Shabbat, and I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel ben Lyman. Note that all quotations are taken from the complete Jewish Bible translation by David H. Stern, Jewish New Testament Publications Incorporated, unless otherwise noted. The written commentary was updated on February 26th of 2006. Let's begin with the opening blessing for the Torah. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam, asher bachar banu mekol ha'amim, venatan lanu et Torah to. Baruch atah Adonai noten ha-Torah. Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe. You have selected us from among all the peoples and have given us your Torah. Blessed are you, Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. Welcome to Parashat Tetzaveh. Now, with the exception of the golden calf incident coming up in chapters 32 through 34, the details of the Mishkan with the priestly temple duties will take up the remainder of our study in the book of Shemot. You might ask yourself, why is the sovereign of the universe so determined to give us the, uh, the minute details concerning each important piece and function of his tabernacle? After all, you might remind yourself, the tabernacle is both a portable structure as well as a semi-permanent structure. It's not even the permanent structure as we know that the um, temple is going to become. The tabernacle is in every way a temporary uh, dwelling place for Hashem. I mean, I understand the temple as, as well, but the temple is a more permanent structure. So you might wonder out loud, as I have and as have the sages, um, why all the details? Well, while I can't be dogmatic about my answer, I believe that a thorough study of the book of Hebrews the most informative book of the Brit Chadashah, the Apostolic Scriptures, a.k.a. the New Testament. Um, the, it, it, uh, it concerns itself with this subject about um, sacrifices and such. In fact, it talks about the sacrifices under the language of the tabernacle. If you'll notice and go back and read the book of Hebrews, it doesn't even talk about the sacrifices in the language of the temple, which... Surely the temple had replaced the Mishkan at this time, and you would think that it, the writer should have used um, temple language, but he uses tabernacle language. Anyway, it's going to give us our answer as to um, uh, why all of the details are so important. And of course, this is well known. Our great high priest Yeshua is the reality of every type and shadow that's described in the Torah. And, of course, all of the details surrounding the Mishkan because he fulfills the functions and the purposes and so we may not know everything yet 
but Hashem knows why he gave such detail regarding the building. And Hashem, I believe, will allow us to uncover those truths when the time comes, perhaps when the Messiah returns. That's an awful lot of Torah study, and I'm looking forward to it. I hope you are too. So, knowing that Yeshua, looking backwards in hindsight, knowing that Yeshua is the type and shadow, and fulfills all of the purposes of the Mishkan, you might ask me, Ariel, you are Messianic, how come you're not dogmatic about your answer? Well, here's why. Because while it is true that Yeshua can be found in almost every single piece and function of the Mishkan, we have to remember, the Mishkan was in fact a temporary dwelling structure built for the glory of Hashem. He said, you build it and I will dwell among you. And because it worked, they built it and he dwelt among them. Then we understand that the Mishkan itself was not Yeshua. It's not a, 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 some elaborate theophany such as the angel of the Lord, the word of the Lord, the Malach Adonai, the Davar Adonai. These um, were living, um, uh, uh, how should I say, um, these were people. I mean, these these were personages. And yet the Mishkan is an inanimate object. Um, sure, God's glory dwelt there, and sure, miracles took place. However, the Mishkan is a, 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 a very elaborate tent. And uh, as such, it served as the focal point of the um, meeting place with Hashem and his people. And, of course, the um, negotiations between the people and the priests, the go-betweens. So we know that the Mishkan was a very important part of Israelite life back then and as we shall see um, it's going to play an important part in the future uh, as the um, temple attempts to get rebuilt temple number three I should say um, but in my opinion it could very well start out as a tabernacle again at any rate the Mishkan is not Yeshua even though it points towards Yeshua and if we negate the natural if we just minimize the natural at the expense I mean, say, in favor of the uh, spiritual, if the natural goes away, well, then we might just, just might lose sight of its significance for the people that day. We might minimize the experience that uh, they both had and that they were required to participate in if we focus only on the spiritual. I think it's a Greco-Roman mindset that says that um, it's either or. It's either natural or spiritual. We can't have both. But in reality, we know that we can have both natural and spiritual. So let's practice an Hebraic mindset. It's not either or. It's both and. It's both natural and spiritual. Because to be sure, as we're going to find out, the people living in that day interacted with the same God that we interact with today, albeit on a very different um, experiential way. Um, you know, they interacted with God through the priests, through the sacrifices, um, through the, the shared meals and things like that. And so we can't say to them that they didn't know God any more than they could say that, well, you guys don't know God if they were to be able to compare their living experience with our living experience. Um, theirs was real. So the tabernacle was real. It was a real experience. It was. It's not to be minimized, and I think that we should study it accordingly, okay? All right. Um, although it is crucial... Uh, that the student of the Bible understand that Yeshua is the f reality of faith, blessings, and promises taught in the whole of the Tanakh. Allow me to state this next point in no uncertain terms. Okay? The church has not replaced the Jews as the chosen people of God. Okay? The church has not replaced uh, the Jewish people. The church has not replaced Israel. Replacement theology is wrong. Okay? Supersessionism is wrong. 
Yes, Yeshua has inaugurated a better and more blessed covenant with his church. Okay? If I could allow that language to um, stand for a little bit. However, this covenant act is actually built, the one that Yeshua has made, it's actually built upon the promises of the original covenants. The um, promises of the Tanakh are stacked upon one another. And one covenant comes along and clarifies the previous one and, and um, brings it into sharper focus so that as the history or as the uh, uh, days went by and history was being written, eventually when we got to Yeshua's day, we simply have the most clear or clarified version of the promise as it's spelled out and articulated in the Tanakh. Um, it's, it simply starts at a wider, broader lens in, in Avraham's day and Moshe's day, and it narrows itself down or zooms in, goes from the macro to the micro. Um, in Yeshua's day. Accordingly, it should be noted that the well-known New Covenant promises um, that are found in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, as well as Hebrews 8, 8 through 12, if you look at the details, they're actually made with the houses of Judah and Israel. Okay? That's what it says. I will make a new covenant, a Brit Chadashah, with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Now, my challenge is this to the people who say, well, no, 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 Ariel, there's no more Israel. The church has replaced Israel. There's a new covenant. There's no old covenant. People who want to believe that um, supposed view, my question to them is, is, if the church has replaced either of these two, where's, it, where's the evidence found in the Bible? God doesn't say he'll cut a covenant with the Gentiles. No, the Gentiles are brought into Israel. The Gentiles are not a second um, plan or plan B. The Gentiles were always part of plan A, which is to take Israel to new heights and to expand her borders, to bring the Gentiles in, not as plan B, but plan A. God has always promised to bless the nations through Israel by bringing them into Israel and ultimately bringing them into the covenant made with his son. So, um, if... God has replaced Israel. Where is the evidence in the Bible? Either Old or New Testament. The challenge is presented, and yet I can hear the silence now. Why? Because there is none. There simply is no evidence to support any new uh, covenant replacing the covenant made with Israel. No. Um, instead, as I mentioned, uh, Gentiles are grafted into Israel. The church largely comprised of former Gentiles. In other words, I use the word former there, um, meaning historically pagans. Uh, briefly, at times, I will equate the word Gentile with the word pagan. But overall, I don't equate those two terms. I think that the term Gentile should not be spoken of pejoratively. Rather, the term Gentile is um, a neutral term, just like Jewish is. Um, anyway, um, but it, it, sometimes the verses seem to be speaking that way, and so I'll allow it this time. So, the church largely comprised of former Gentiles, in essence, historical pagans, and a good number of Israelites, those who lost their identity due to gross idolatry. You remember, God said that he would scatter the, the ten tribes and um, uh, assimilate them into the nations because of their idolatry. Um, the church has now been miraculously grafted into the natural olive tree. Or, maybe I should say, Gentiles have been grafted in and Israelites have been grafted back in. Um, or if they don't know their Gentile, if they don't know that they're Israelites, well then they're just grafted in the first time. This, of course, is alluded to in Romans 11, verses 13 through 32. Now these people who the Torah describes as once far off, they're the Gentiles. Okay, they've now been brought near by the shedding of a Messiah's blood, and of course, brought near being 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 brought near both to God, theologically, but also brought near to Israel. 
They're grafted into Israel. They're not necessarily grafted into Yeshua. Although if we use the vine and branches principle that our master spoke of, they are certainly grafted into um, the vine uh, who is Yeshua. However, Paul's analogy tells us in both Romans and Ephesians that the Gentiles, or those who are far off, were brought near to the commonwealth of Israel. So if it's not about Israel, what's this whole la uh, language, what's this, all this talk about being grafted into Israel? Who cares? We just want to be grafted into Yeshua, right? Wrong. It is about Israel, okay? They have been brought near and made fellow citizens. Fellow citizens. We are partakers, not overtakers, partakers with Israel, with God's people and members of God's family. I keep saying grafted into Israel. They're grafted in so that they become part of Israel. The secret or the mystery made um, hidden to uh, historic Israel down through the ages was that they would eventually be comprised largely of Gentiles, those from the nations, as well as native-born, the Ezrach, those uh, born of um, uh, from Jacob's loins or Jacob's lineage. That's the mystery, hidden to them down through the ages, but now being revealed in Paul's day, um, the mystery of the gospel. Of course, if you ask your average church theologian today, um, the mystery seems to remain for some reason. If you ask him who is Israel, he'll tell you, point to the synagogue and to the Jewish people as a whole. And if you ask him if the church is part of Israel, he'll say no. That's what you get when you ask your average church theologian. I know that there are notable exceptions. Many people within the church today, thankfully, are learning to understand and come to believe that they are, in fact, a part of Israel. However, if you ask many, then you'll get that answer. Conversely, if you jump the tracks, go to the other side of the street, go ask your average rabbi, you'll ask him who is Israel. He will point to, again, the same group of people, uh, the Jewish people and uh, those who are uh, Jewish by birth and such, or those who have converted. And largely, again, the blindness remains. He doesn't know who Israel is, really. He doesn't know that Israel is comprised of genuine Gentiles uh, who have genuinely placed their trust and faith in Yeshua, the promised Son of God. So, um, it's interesting that uh, you and I listening to the podcast, those of you who are of Messianic ilk, those of you who are in the know, um, we've got the truth. And what what's our responsibility? Get it out there. Let's tell everybody who Israel really is, okay? Don't uh, be surprised if they pick up stones to stone you. So, in, in a nutshell, and, and I'll tell you why I went this direction in a second. In a nutshell, Gentiles don't replace Jewish people. They, the Gentiles, become grafted into the one family. There is room in Papa's house for both people groups, both Gentiles as well as Jews. And that's exactly the way it has been designed. Um, both houses of Israel, both Israel and Judah, um, comprise Israel. And we also need to add that sincere former pagans also are brought into the house. Of course, once they're brought in as sincere covenant members, the name pagan gets dropped and um, covenant member is applied instead. Okay. Now, why did I bring all that up? Well, our study of the Mishkan will give us a better appreciation for the ultimate work that Yeshua accomplished with his life, death, and resurrection. Yet, the Mishkan is not really Yeshua himself. I have to keep saying that. I know people who would like to read the Old Testament or would like to read these passages, Exodus chapter 25 and following, and say, well, it's all about Jesus. Let's just read this and forget about the details and just remember that it's all about Jesus. No, it's not all about Jesus in that sense. God gave us the details for a reason. We need not go down that dangerous spiritualizing path because again it does damage to the text and I think the Torah needs to be appreciated for its own um, we don't lose sight of the fact that it points to Yeshua 
don't get me wrong, we're not going to fall for either ditch. The Torah explicitly states that the earthly items were copies of heavenly originals. They're not even really blueprints in that sense. You know how a blueprint is a schematic or a draw-up, a draw, something drawn up that may not exist. Like if you were to go to a site where the building plans have been drawn up and yet the building is not constructed yet, you could ask to see the blueprints and you might look at it and you could actually get an idea of what the building is going to look like when it gets built. But the blueprint on paper represents um, something as of yet future. Now, in one sense, the Mishkan was a was uh, was constructed using blueprints because Moshe was shown the pattern on the mountain according to um, what the Torah tells us. And Moshe was to construct the tabernacle exactly according to the pattern that Hashem showed him on the mountain. So there were blueprints in a sense. But unlike earthly structures, the blueprints that Moshe were shown were representatives of, an, of a heavenly reality. There was already something built. So that the Mishkan comes along and it assumes the shape and the function of what is in heaven already. So the Mishkan isn't really um, a set of blueprints in that sense. It transcends um, what earthly blueprints might represent in that um, the Mishkan is a copy of an already existent uh, structure. If anything, based on that uh, definition, what I just gave you, if anything, the sacrificial lambs slain year after year are copies of Yeshua. You see what I mean? Somehow, sometimes we look and say, "Well, they're just a um, shadow of Yeshua, and therefore they don't um, they don't represent anything in in reality. They're just they're just mere shadows." And Yeshua is the original. Now, Yeshua is in fact the substance. He is the body. However, the shadows are important. The 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 lambs are shadows. The Mishkan is a shadow. And I think what's happened is, is again, in the Greco-Roman mindset that has crept into Western thinking, particularly within the church, we see a shadow as something as deficient, and a shadow as something less than. And yet in the Hebraic model, a shadow is a wonderful thing. In fact, try this, this experiment for yourself. Go outside, take, uh, go outside while it's, while it's daylight, while you can see the sun. Go outside and hold your hand, say, maybe a foot, 12 inches, from the ground. Do you notice that your hand is casting a shadow? Spread your fingers apart. Make numbers. Make little bunny signs. Do you notice that the shadow is the outline of your hand? Do you notice that without the shadow, you could not really know what the outline of your hand was unless you either looked at your hand or looked back at the shadow? Do you notice how the shadow gives us details concerning what the shape and the size and the and the um, um, the function of your hand is? You know, if you point it hold up one finger or two or five, the shadow gives a great amount of detail concerning the original. And especially as you get closer to the shadow, the more detail, if you move the shadow closer to the uh, original, the more detail you can make out. So the shadow is not a bad thing. The shadow is a good thing. Yeah, the shadows showed us the function of Messiah. The shadow gives us the details of the work and the ministry of the Messiah. It's a good thing to study the shadows when the body is not present at the moment. Don't you think? Yeah, if you want to learn more about Yeshua, study the shadows. They're a good thing. Alright, the glory of the Father is the light shining itself on the Mishkan. And Yeshua is the body. 
So with the glory of the Father shining His light on the Son, the body of Yeshua, then we get to see the shadow of the Mishkan. So we've got those three components. We've got the light above, we've got the Mishkan in the middle, and then we got the, sh I'm sorry, we got the light above, we've got the, f the sun in the middle, and then we've got the shadow that is being cast, and the shadow is the Mishkan. The functions and the details of the earthly Mishkan are the shadow, and that's a good thing. Let's study accordingly. This next section is entitled, The Light of the World. As we move through the details of um, Parashat Tetzaveh, the, details are, uh, the detailed account of the tabernacle and its functions um, actually begins with a recount of the maintenance of the menorah, which is the lamp stand that's found in the holy place. Now this lamp stand, if you remember from last week's reading, um, was formed from a solid piece of gold, and it was huge. It's believed that this lamp weighed as much as 66 pounds. It was hammered out of a complete work of gold. Now, this was no light structure. <laughs> Pardon the pun. You get it? Light structure? All right. The menorah easily symbolizes the Messiah. Easily. I don't even have to dig, dig too deep to figure this one out. And neither should you. Yeshua stated that he is the light of the world. And he is. Now, he meant that in a more spiritual sense, but um, we're going to look at the Mishkan and see how this fits as well. The menorah provided a glorious, eternal light to the priests who ministered within the holy place. Our previous parashah described the menorah as having seven lamps, okay? Seven, um, uh, seven arms, if you will. The number seven, of course, is significant in the Torah as it represents perfection. Uh, if the menorah is a symbol of our perfect Messiah, then where in the Torah can we or should we be able to find a correlation to the number seven as we recast this uh, type back on or this shadow back onto the type? All right. Let's suppose that Yeshua is the light of the world, and He is. Well, then, is there maybe an aspect of Yeshua's ministry where we can also um, draw a correlation between the number seven? I believe there is. Let's take a look at a familiar passage in Yeshayahu Isaiah. All right. In Isaiah chapter eleven, verses one through five, we're given a vivid description of the coming Messiah. All rabbinic sources, as well as Christian scholars, agree that the passage is a prophecy concerning the long-awaited Mashiach, the Anointed One, the Savior. Now, the branch of Yeshai spoken of in the passage is a reference to his bloodline. We know that he is offspring of Jesse. Um, that's why it says. That's why it calls him the branch of Yeshai, Jesse. Jesse was the father of King David. And it is a well-known fact that the Messiah was to be born from David's loins. Of course, he is a son of David. He is a king of Israel. He's the king of Israel, but he's also a king since he springs from David's loins. He has the right to the throne. Now, the, the uh, Torah describes him this way. Let's turn to our passage, right? Quote, The spirit of Adonai will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and power, the spirit of knowledge and fearing Adonai, he will be inspired by fearing Adonai, end quote. That's um, uh, Isaiah 11, verse 2. Now, as can be observed in the little passage there, verse, the spirit of Adonai is referred to seven times. Go back and look. And it's in an orderly fashion. Let's go back and count them. Number one, the spirit of Adonai. Number two and three, the spirit of wisdom and understanding. Number four and five, the spirit of counsel and power. Number six and seven, the spirit of knowledge and fearing Adonai. You see how that is? The spirit of Adonai, and then we have um, three pairs of twos. 
Now, this is not an arbitrary use of words coined by the Navi, by the prophet. I don't think so. He's writing under the power of the Spirit, <laughs> and the Spirit inspires him to write of the coming Yeshua, the coming Messiah, in a specific way. Yeshuahu is, I believe, knowledgeable of the details of the menorah. And so, perhaps as he's writing, when he went back and looked at it, he realized, hmm, this is a... Uh, this is no arbitrary use of words. This is not ordinary. There's there's a chiastic structure going on. Now, the Torah frequently employs the use of word pictures. It's one of its uh, ways to teach people. It's it's it speaks, and yet it's 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 drawing a picture for us in its in its words. These are phrases and words that are coined for the explicit purpose of calling the reader's attention to a certain truth of the understanding of Hashem and His purposes among mankind. So it gives us um, teaching tools this way. When the Torah uses the word anoint, for example, just give you an example of, of word picture. When the Torah uses the term anoint, which is um, where we get the word Mashiach, um, the picture that's painted when it says anoint is actually, when, when I say the word anoint, and I'm using the Hebrew understanding of the word anoint back in, back in that day as well as today, what should come to mind is a picture of a horn of oil, presumably olive oil, uh, being poured down, or being poured out and down upon an individual. Okay, That's what anointed means. In that sense, every king and every priest is a Mashiach because they were all anointed with oil to, to um, uh, preside over their offices. But when we say anoint, that's the picture that we should get in our heads. It's a word picture. Okay. In fact, in the case of Aharon, uh, the Kohen Hagadol, the high priest, the Torah describes the oil as being poured down and upon his head, down as an anointing, it's in Exodus 29, um, verse 7, uh, in this parasha. And as it's being poured over him, I can always imagine seeing the oil. As it runs down his head, down his face, into his beard, and down his shoulders, as Moshe makes sure that these instructions are being followed out. The oil, if we know, if we remember, is a representation of the spirit of the Lord himself. The spirit of Adonai coming down onto the head of the individual, permeating the skin and the face and the beard and running down the shoulders, down into a shirt, um, down his neck, down his back. Can you picture that? Uh, the warm oil as it, as it, as it uh, uh, flows down the individual, um, the feeling uh, of the oil. Um, try this sometime. Just take, uh, maybe not olive oil. Um, try this with baby oil if you can afford to... Uh, uh, waste the baby oil, or, or not necessarily waste it, but you know what I mean. Take it and uncap it so that you can get a good amount of it. Stand in the in the tub or somewhere where you're not going to make a mess, and just pour the oil over your head, and close your eyes. Don't let it get in your eyes, um, and in your mouth. But but imagine, as it were, the spirit of the Lord coming down and upon you to anoint you to take the office of a priest or a king. And today, we. Can, can, we, we can play along with that because we are called a kingdom of priests. Anyway, back to my commentary. The oil is representation of the spirit of Adonai. And the Torah is explicitly teaching us that the office of the Kohen Hagadol, the high priest, cannot, proper function, uh, cannot function properly uh, without the supernatural anointing from the Ruach HaKodesh, the spirit of holiness, the Holy Spirit. We know again from the book of Hebrews that Yeshua is our great Kohen Hagadol. He is the ultimate high priest that the earthly high priests draw or drew their um, 
their anointing from. They drew their uh, authority from the ultimate high priest, Yeshua. As such, he, the high priest in the heavenlies, would also need to walk in this very anointing in order to fulfill his earthly ministry. You remember when Yeshua came to earth, he, he as it were, humbled himself. He simplified himself. Um, he, he allowed himself to put on humanity, and in doing so, he had to become like the other high priests, and that he needed to walk in the anointing um, of the Spirit. And so what does the Torah say of him in Luke chapter 14, I'm sorry, Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 18a? Let's read that there. Quote, Now when he went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up on Shabbat, he went to the synagogue as usual. He stood up to read, and he was given the scroll of the prophet uh, Yeshayahu. Unrolling the scroll, he found the place where it was written, quote, The Spirit of Adonai is upon me. End quote. Now, um, the verse actually goes on to quote another passage, phone much further into the scroll of Yeshayahu. Actually, it goes on to quote um, Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 2, as well as 58.6. Yet Yeshua starts, if you'll notice, by announcing that, quote, The Spirit of Adonai is upon him. End quote. What we have here, in my opinion, is a double application that amounts to really a play on words. How so? Well, his listeners would have immediately recognized the messianic phrase, quote, the spirit of Adonai is upon me. Surely they did, because they were reading the Torah, um, as we should be reading the Torah. So when we hear the phrase, the spirit of Adonai is upon me, then we automatically link that to the messianic passage. Especially since the passage is found within the Tanakh, and the phrase is from... Um, Isaiah 61 reads, quote, The Spirit of Adonai Elohim is upon me. So, that's why I call it a double application. Look at the first one, The Spirit of Adonai is upon me. And then look at the second one, The Spirit of Adonai Elohim is upon me. The title for Hashem, Elohim, is not used by Yeshua in Luke here. He doesn't say, The Spirit of Adonai Elohim is upon me. He actually just says, if you look at Luke there again, it says, The Spirit of Adonai is upon me. Now, I believe that Yeshua is making reference to the Isaiah 11 passage, but simultaneously tying it into the Isaiah 61 passage. That's why I'm calling it a double application. I believe that Yeshua is actually um, quoting one. Now, there may be some, some um, um, differences of wording in the Septuagint. I'll have to go look that up. But without even going there, um, the two passages certainly are reminiscent of one another. And so I'm just going to go with the idea for now that they are a double reference. Um, Isaiah 11 and Isaiah 61. In other words, he wants his listeners to realize that he is the Mashiach, the anointed one, of both passages. That's my point, whether we go to the Septuagint or not. He is, in fact, the Messiah spoken of in both sides because he is the anointed one. So what of the reference to seven? We haven't gone there yet, have we? Well, let's look at the last book of the Apostolic Scriptures for a moment, and then we'll find a reference to 7, okay? First of all, I've established a link to the Spirit. Now we're going to draw a link to the 7, and once we do that, we're going we're to come full circle and go back to our menorah, okay? You ready? Here we go. In Revelation chapter 5, verse 6, our visionary, Yohanan, John, is given a glimpse of the heavenly throne. Now in his vision he sees a lamb, which appears to have been slaughtered, or slain, having, what? Seven horns and seven eyes. Now the scripture tells us that these seven are the sevenfold, what? Spirit of God. Seven spirits of God. Now whence do we find the sevenfold spirit of God? 
You guessed it, in our Isaiah 11 passage, of course. We're back to Yeshiyahu. There, the spirit is described as a total of seven, remember? Yet, laid out in a pattern of one, with three pairs of two along with it. So we got a, a pattern, a menorah pattern. We got a central staff with the three pairs, or the three doublets, uh, coming alongside, three on one side and three on the three on the right side and three on the left side, forming a total of seven. Three, three plus one equals seven. So, does the pattern look familiar now? If you have to, pull out a blank piece of paper and draw a menorah. Draw one central staff and then draw the six um, um, arms connecting to it, three on one side and three on the other, and you'll see that it is, in fact, a menorah pattern that we're talking about. It's the very same pattern that the menorah was fashioned into, one with with uh, three pairs of two on each side. Now the seven branch lamp consisted of one central shaft, which we call a shamash today, it's the servant lamp, and with the three pairs that were connected to it, it's really that each pair is like one tube that's bent into a U-shape or a V-shape. And so it's one tube or one um, shaft uh, that's curved in like a U-shape or a V-shape, and therefore, if we put the center staff in the middle, then we end up with two on each side. Focusing on just the top of the structure, let's say we took the menorah and we were to get a bird's eye view of it, get an aerial view of it, all right? Here's what we might see. Let's draw, or let's imagine, an algebraic equation to demonstrate the pattern, all right? Because what I want to do is give you what's known as a chiasm, a chiastic structure where we see that there is a relationship between the pairs on either side of the center staff. All right? If you look at my paper there, you'll see that in the middle of my algebraic equation, I call it algebraic simply just because it's using um, alphabet numbers. Um, in my algebraic equation there, or alphabetic uh, uh, drawing there, we have the bold and prominent letter A, um, and then um, to either side, to the left and the right of the letter A, we have the letter B, and then to the either side of the letter B, uh, we have a letter C on the right side and a letter C on the left side. And then we have a letter D, and that is on the outside of the letter C's. So reading from right to left or left to right, it doesn't matter. It goes D, C, B, A, B, C, D. All right. Now this is representative of the sevenfold spirit of God. This is the very same description given to Yeshua, who is the Lamb that was slain in John's vision. Okay, Now we can understand that the Spirit represented by the oil gave the lamp its light. See? The Spirit illumines the lamp and the anointing illumines the person. Yeshua was empowered or anointed by the oil of the Spirit. And that's why he reads the passage. Okay, Our current parasha instructs what? Am Israel to make sure that the menorah burned continually. It is the ner tamid, the eternal um, or regular light. Um, Rashi calls it the regular light. Uh, Ibn Ezra calls it the regular light, but Rashban, uh, I'm sorry, Ramban, Nachmanides, he calls it the perpetual light, uh, one that was supposed to be lit perpetually, never going out, whereas Rashi and Ibn Ezra simply say it was uh, lit on a regular basis. Um, Josephus goes on to record of the menorah that it was actually um, perpetually lit. So um, Yeshua was to perpetually, in my opinion, walk in the Spirit. And by the way, so are we. Now it's true that we are to walk in the Spirit on a regular basis, but really, why should we let any Spirit deplete from us? We should be walking in the Spirit perpetually. So this picture that I'm describing with the menorah and the lamps, 
Doesn't this perfectly describe a Messiah whose spirit continually shines for the entire world to see? He walked in the power of the spirit. And um, we should too. This is the example that's given to us. This is the legacy that's been passed on to us through our perfectly, our perfect heavenly high priest who became an earthly priest as it were. Um, actually the book of Hebrews tells us if he, that if he were on earth he would not be in the high priest position. Why? Because he was from the wrong tribe for one thing. Um, he was from the tribe of Judah and the priests were to be from the tribe of Levi. So um, but at any rate, he is the high priest, and now that he has ascended to the right hand of the Father, he continually um, intercedes for us as the earthly high priests also interceded for the people. I don't want to spend all of our time on the menorah. The portion does describe many of the other mishkan and priestly functions as well. Yet, I wanted to study the menorah in much detail since it historically remains one of the most easily recognized symbols in Judaism today. And as such, it has become the national symbol of the state of Israel in conjunction with, what, the Magen David, the Star of David. All right? So, let's move on into our parasha.